it's uh, great to be with you guys. I really enjoy being here. And actually, uh, getting, to, getting to share with you is, is kind of fun and exciting for me. And I, I fully appreciate that fun and exciting might not be the words that you would use to describe it, but I'm excited to be here nonetheless. And so just a thought out there for the adults in the room, uh, you know, this, this part of our, our service, the message is really meant for a, more of a, an adult uh, group, if you will. Um, not, not that there's anything shocking we're going to talk about this week, but we are in the Old Testament and crazy things happen in the Old Testament. And then this week there'll be a little uh, murder and mayhem. So you might want to keep that in mind. But uh, we're actually working our way through a three-part series on David. And we're, what we're doing is we're taking a look at the conflict in David's life and the conflict that he faces. And we're using that to get kind of as a window into who he is and what he believed and, what he, and why he did what he did. And we're really looking at answering the question of why would God describe David as a man after his own heart? And so uh, we started uh, back in March with David versus Goliath. And we, and we saw then that a 15-year-old David who had enough, enough faith and enough belief that God would protect him that he was willing to go and fight a giant. And of course, he fought Goliath and he won and kind of became a star from that moment on. And uh, years later, when he wrote about that experience, he wrote this. He said, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust, and my hope is in you all day long. And then in May, we looked at the conflict between David and Saul, and we actually looked at uh, David now as a 22-year-old young man who was feeling alone, abandoned, and afraid. And because of that, he was making poor decision after poor decision. He was getting himself kind of in this real difficult situation. We called it David's wild ride. And in the end, he finds out that his poor decisions had hurt a lot of other people. And he was broken by this when he realized that what he was doing was not just against God's will, but it was also had an effect on other people. And uh, so we, after we saw that, tonight, the, the idea this morning, sorry, is that we would finish the trilogy. We would basically take a look at David versus himself. And uh, we're now looking at David as he approached 30 years old. And uh, he's really struggling to choose God's will over his will. And he finds all of these different people and all of these different ways in which he believes, well, maybe I should just do it my way. Maybe I don't need to wait for God's timing. And uh, so as I said, that was the plan to finish it this morning, but I kind of got sidetracked. And we're actually now going to need two weeks to finish uh, David versus himself because as I was preparing for the message that I'm not delivering today, I was reading chapter 24, which is entitled David Spares Saul's Life. And then I was reading chapter 26, which, which is entitled, David Again Spares Saul's Life. And in between was chapter 25. And I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you this, but basically I was going to skip chapter 25 because I didn't really understand what was going on in that story. And I kind of assumed you wouldn't notice. I kind of thought, they're not paying that much attention. If I jump from 24 to 26 and back to 24, who's going to even realize I didn't cover chapter 25? And so that was the plan. I was just going to skip it. But as I was preparing for, again, the message I'm not delivering today, I started to learn what was going on in chapter 25. And uh, once I understood what was happening, it kind of grabbed hold of me, and now I feel like I have to share it with you. So we're going to focus on chapter 25 this time out, and then we'll, uh, we'll finish it off next time around. But I feel like I need to kind of give a little bit of credit where credit's due, because again, I, I misunderstood the entire story. I read the story, and I was mad at David. I was like, what is David doing? I thought he'd learned his lesson. And, uh, and as I read through these other materials, I wanted to try and kind of thank David Nasser, who has a Right Now video series called King David. Uh, I watched that. It was really helpful in understanding the time in which David lived. We're talking 3,000 years ago. Another cool thing about that video series is it's all filmed in Israel, so you get to see some of these places and the terrain in which he was hiding and running. 
Uh, Andy Stanley had a uh, five-part sermon series. You can listen to podcasts from his website, North Point Ministries. That's the name of his church organization. And uh, it was simply called David. Again, really helped me understand what was happening. And finally, Tom Moore. And if you're wondering who's Tom Moore, I don't know either, but I just found his sermon online. And I found his sermon notes, and I read through them, and I'm like, this is really good. I kind of understand what's happening in David's life, what would have brought him to the moment of chapter 25. And his, his sermon was just called David the Shepherd King. So thanks to those guys for um, putting together their hard work, which made my uh, work a lot easier. But I just want to kind of take 15 minutes to, to walk through the narrative of what happens in chapter 25, because there's a lot of moving parts. But first, I think it's important we kind of pick up on the timeline, and so we need to know that David is still on the run. He's still on the run just where we left him last time, but now, as we found out, he's no longer alone, abandoned, and afraid. In fact, he's got a lot of people who are rallying to him. It started with some family members, some former soldiers who had fought under his command, and then we, we, we believe it was just a number of people who just kind of were looking for some leadership in their life and just kind of attached on to David. And we find him at this point that he has 600 fighting men. So he's actually got a small little army of his own. It's really a bit of a militia. And we, we probably estimate there was closer to 1,000 people living with David in this community at this part, this point. And it's a little bit like kind of a cross between Braveheart and Robin Hood. You know, it's, it's David and his men. They're loved by the people. He keeps coming to the rescue of different, uh, different uh, groups uh, who are being attacked by the Philistines. But then he just sneaks away just before King Saul gets there looking to kill him. And he basically spends half of his time running from King Saul and half of his time engaging uh, with the Philistines who are still at war with Israel at this time. And so that leaves us with a story in chapter 25, and it's simply called David, Nabal, and Abigail. And so we learn something right away in chapter 25, starts in verse 2. We learn something about Nabal. And what it tells us is that Nabal was rich. And I'm not talking about private jet, house in Beverly Hills, drives a Bentley everywhere rich. I'm talking about 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats rich. I mean, you just let that wash over you for a second. This is how rich this guy was. Uh, Try not to be jealous when you hear those numbers. But uh, I decided, you know what? It'd probably be helpful if I converted that. I accounted for inflation and gave you kind of a modern-day number. And I did all the calculations, and it came out to tons and tons of sheep and a lot of goats. I mean, you don't need to convert it, right? I mean, 3,000 and 1,000 are already really big numbers. And so he's, he's a very rich man. We also learned that he has a very beautiful wife named Abigail. He actually has more than one wife, but one of his wives is very beautiful, and her name's Abigail. And he's described repeatedly as being surly and mean and difficult to deal with, and uh, he's just very, not very well liked. And then we actually learned that his name, Nabal, actually translates to mean fool, which is just an amazing thought. Back at a time when parents named their kids Uh, whatever they named their kids, it was meant for a specific purpose. It was meant to be kind of their hopes and dreams for that kid. Nabal's parents, they held that baby and they looked at each other and they looked at their little newborn baby and they looked at each other again. And then they said, let's name him Fool. And I can only imagine he had a brother running around the house named Idiot. I don't know that, but it's just my guess. I mean, it reminds me of Jacob and Esau. You know, we know Jacob's name means usurper. It means it's a powerful name. It means to take control, uh, take power from another and use it for yourself. And then we know that Esau's name uh, quite literally means covered in hair. He was basically, he was a hairy little baby. So that's what they named him. And, uh, but anyway, we continue on in verse four and we read that David was hiding in the desert, hiding from Saul in the desert. And then he heard that Nabal, 
And we don't know anything about their former relationship, but he hears that Nabal is shearing a sheep. And when I read that, I thought to myself, well, so what? This is the Bible, not a farmer's almanac. Why do I need to know about the, uh, the customs and the practices of farmers back 3,000 years ago? But what I learned is that this would have been Nabal's annual payday. You see, if, you, if, you're, if you're taking care of 4,000 uh, sheep and goats, having 11 good months means nothing. You have to get those goats to sheep shearing time. Sorry, the sheep to sheep shearing time, or else you don't profit at all. And so this was the one time where he would actually profit from all of his work and all of his men's work. So he would receive his payday. And his men, they would receive whatever pay they got for the entire year they would get on that day as well. It would have been a time of great prosperity. Um, it would have been a time where Nabal looked to increase the size of his flocks. And if it had been a really good year, maybe add another wife to the, to the group. It would have been a time for a great celebration. It would have been a time of a great feast. And it would have been a time of great generosity. And that's important to know because uh, knowing that explains a little bit about what happens next. And so we'll pick it up. All of our references from uh, the scriptures this morning about the, about the story of David come from 1 Samuel uh, 25. And so starting in verse 4, it says this. When David heard that Nabal was shearing a sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with a message from Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men. They will tell you that this is true. So would you be so kind to us, since we have come at a time of great celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. And so when I read that, it sounded to me like David was trying to shake him down. It sounded like a bit of a mafia-style protection ring. You know, a little bit like David saying, hey, you notice your business didn't burn down this year? Maybe you'd like your business not to burn down again next year? It just seemed like it was the wrong thing for him to have been doing. And you know what it really reminded me of? It reminded me of my favorite TV show by far growing up. My favorite TV show was The A-Team. And you had, you had wise old Hannibal and smooth and suave face man, and you had crazy old Murdoch, and of course, on the end here, you had the famous Mr. T, who was B.A. Baracus. And I like to think if I, stand, if I stand just right, it looks like I belong with them, right? I'm one of the team, for sure. And I, I love B.A., because B.A., that stood for bad attitude. That's what he was known as, bad attitude. And then I found out, though, if you watched every single episode, which I did, you find out in season four that his name is actually Bosco Elbert, which, okay, fair enough. But then you find out in the next season that all growing up, his mom had always called him Scooter. And as soon as I found that out, that his name was actually Scooter, it really kind of ruined the show for me. But I'll be honest, Mr. T's real first name in real life is Lawrence. And so maybe it was just art imitating life. I don't know. But that's how every A-Team episode went down. The small businessman or the small, the small time person just trying to make a living, trying to do the right thing was being squeezed by a wannabe gangster. And that's why they would call in the A-Team. But what I learned was that quite the opposite was true. David's request was expected and acceptable. He had provided a legitimate service for Nabal. And Nabal's response well, it was anything but acceptable and expected. Let's just read it together. Verse 10. This is Nabal responding to David's men when they asked him, Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young man. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There's a lot of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shears? There's a lot of mys in there. 
and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Well, I mean, that's pretty passive-aggressive, but it's also pretty good passive-aggressive. I mean, he knows who David is. He knows why he's run away from his master, and he knows where he's come from. I mean, this is textbook throwing shade before they even knew what that meant. And if you don't know what throwing shade means, do what I did and just ask somebody who's under 25, because that's how I found out. But by today's standard of fairness, Nabal's was fairly understandable. I mean, sure, he was rude, but he didn't owe David anything. That's how we would look at it. But we find out that 3,000 years ago, he would have owed David something. David had provided a service for him. And we'll hear a little bit more about that in just a second. But in light of that, we start to understand why David responded the way he did. Because when his men came back and told him what Nabal had said, David simply said this, strap on your swords, boys. And then he went and he got his sword also. But it seems like an overreaction, doesn't it? It's such, it's such, a, it's such a strong statement to say. And you, so we, I think there's a bit of a connection maybe to something to do with uh, COVID-19. And it's, it's this term called quarantine fatigue. Have you heard this? So quarantine fatigue is basically just this idea that being in self-isolation and following all of our social distancing rules is really hard. And basically what happens is after a little while, people kind of lose the willingness to continue doing what they were willing to do earlier. And so the article says it like this, that self-control or the ability to self-quarantine and do all these other things, it's a little bit like a muscle. And they said generally in our society today, self-control is not a muscle that we use very much. And because of that, it's weak. And so so people who can't continue to self-quarantine, it often becomes a case of where they just get to the point where they feel like, I just can't do this anymore, even knowing they were doing it before. I imagine you look at me right now and you think, yeah, Gary probably spends a lot of time in the gym, which I do in my school because it's air-conditioned. But still, the the analogy works. If you're lifting weights in the gym, your last few reps during your last few sets you reach muscle fatigue. You get to the point where you just can't continue any, any longer. That's why it's a wise idea to have a spotter when you're doing that. And it's a little bit the same thing here with quarantine fatigue. And what I wonder is, did David maybe have a little bit of self-control fatigue of his own? You see, for David, for years, he's been holding back. Remember, the events we're talking about, these, these are separated by seven or eight years. It was seven or eight years of David doing this. Seven or eight years later, David's still doing this. And so he's holding back. He's running from Saul because he believes it's the wrong thing to do to to attack or kill King Saul because he's still the king. And so he's running and he's hiding and he's not using the strength that he has. And I believe a lot of what happens next is David's self-control muscle just kind of gives out because he tells 400 of his 600 soldiers to grab their swords and that they were going to a massacre. And it was going to be a massacre. David had 400 battle-hardened professional troops. And Nabal, and don't tell David I said this, he might be touchy about it, but Nabal just had shepherds. And so this was going to be a massacre. Andy Stanley puts it this way. He says, if it's true that hurt people tend to hurt other people, this may have just been a case of hunted people choosing to hunt other people. I mean, technically, David is within his rights. This is the Old Testament. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a wrong for a wrong. It's a place where actually two wrongs do make a right, or at least it makes things even. And Nabal had done something hurtful to David. He had refused what was owed him. He had insulted him. And so according to the law, it was right for David to retaliate in some way, although I think we can all admit this was a bit of an overreaction. And so David and his men 
they're marching towards Nabal, and they enter the valley where Nabal is shearing his sheep. And as he's walking, David is just talking out loud. He's just kind of talking himself into a couple things. And here's what he says. He says, it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. And then David says this. He said, as God is my witness, I will kill every last man among them. David was not going to negotiate. David did not bring his soldiers as a show of force so that maybe Nabal would uh, give him what he was owed. David was going there to take revenge on, what, on Nabal for what had happened. And it's at that exact moment when David is committed to this course of action, he's committed to marching in there, and he's just made this oath to kill every last man among them that we meet the hero of our story. Because as David says this, he looks up and he sees a donkey. And no, the donkey's not the hero of the story, but on that donkey is the beautiful Abigail. And the Bible actually tells us how beautiful she is. And I I thought, you know, nowadays we have things like this. People Magazine every year puts out a most beautiful issue. That was last year's most beautiful issue. They put Jennifer Garner on the front cover as the most beautiful uh, woman in Hollywood, that sort of idea. So I actually went through the archives and I was able to find a copy of People Magazine from the year 889 BC. And sure enough, Abigail made the cover. I mean, that, you know, she's that kind of beauty, a one in a generation, the fairest in the land. But what was she doing there? And what we find out is that Nabal's organization had a whistleblower. They, someone had overheard Nabal's response to David's men and had been concerned, and rightly so, that something bad was going to come back their way. And so he went and he found Abigail, and this is what he said to her in verse 14. He said, it says, Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us. We have never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You need to know this, and you need to figure out what to do, for there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Well, it would have taken guts to say that about someone like Nabal, but it would have taken even more guts for Abigail to act, but she did. And so without telling her husband, she packed up a huge amount of food supplies to take to David as a gift. And as she saw David, she got off of her donkey and she bowed before him, which was tradition of the time, but not necessarily for a powerful woman, a rich and powerful woman to do for an outlaw. And then she has this moment of bravery. And in that moment of bravery, she treats David like the man of God that she hopes that he is. And she speaks to David as if he is the man of God that she hopes that he is. And this is a bit of a long section, but bear with me because it's too good to skip any of it. Starting in verse 25, it says, I know Nabal, this is uh, Abigail speaking to David. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please do not pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never saw the young men you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands. That's, that's just, it's an amazing statement. She just told him, since you're not going to do what you're thinking about doing, and then she starts to work on David a bit more. She says, let all of your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And, there's a pre- and here's a present I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. 
The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles. And you, will not, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. I mean, I love that. That's genius. She, N- N- Abigail deserves to have some sort of uh, honorary PhD in psychology for what she just did there. She just reminded David about something everybody knew. She reminded David about that slingshot, that slingshot that he had used, that, that defining moment in his life where he had defeated Goliath. And she reminds him of that. And I can only imagine David standing there listening. When she says that, he kind of straightens up a little bit, you know, as he's reminded about that glorious moment. And I can only imagine that he's thinking to himself, you know, oh, you heard about that. That thing with Goliath? Yeah, it was, it was nothing. I mean, anybody in my shoes would have done the same thing. Of course, there was a whole army of people in my shoes, and they were all too afraid. But I, I'm sorry, Abigail, you were saying. I mean, it just reminds me. It reminds me, actually, of something that happened last week. I, I found myself on the roof of my house, and I had one foot on the shingles, and I had one foot kind of straddling in an extension ladder. I'm trying to reach a branch that's just off to the side, because every year when, when we get snow and ice, it comes and it rubs on the on the the um, shingles of our house. So I'm up there and I have the branch and I'm pulling it as hard as I can towards me so I have more. And I got a saw on the other hand, I'm going to cut it. And I realized that, you know, the, the branch I'm using for balance is the branch that I'm cutting. And it seemed like just a fantastic moment for some self-reflection. For Just take a minute to say, how did I get here? Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, you fell off the roof, you hit your head, you have a concussion. That's why you don't know how you got here. But I mean it more philosophically. Like, how do I get myself in this situation? And then I realized, and I looked down the ladder, and there's my beautiful wife holding the ladder. And holding the ladder looks a lot like leaning against it and texting your friends. But still, she's holding the ladder. And I realized I never would have been up here if not for her confidence that I could do this. Because when she looked at me and says, well, you can do this. You don't need to call a guy. Just go up there and cut that branch down. I, knowing that it was a bad idea, went up the ladder anyway. She had built in this confidence for me, and I think that's a little bit of what's going on here because listen to how Abigail finishes. She says, when the Lord has done, sorry, verse 30, when the Lord has done all he promised and has made you the leader of Israel, she's saying when you finally become king because she believed he was going to become king, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. What a thing to say, the staggering burden. And what she's saying to David is simply this. When you look back at your life, what do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known for getting even? Do you want to be known for massacring people who crossed you? Or do you want to be known about God's love and faithfulness and for his glory? I mean, that speech by Abigail is why we have the expression, well, when you put it that way, because he really has no option, no response, but to agree with her. And so that's what he does. He agrees. He actually apologizes to Abigail, thanks her over and over again for her wisdom and her gift. And as he turns back, he he realizes that it was her wisdom that had kind of replaced his rage. And so David accepted the gift and he turns back. And just to finish the story, the next day, Abigail in the morning, she tells her husband what she did. And Nabal, when he heard what she had done, had a stroke on the spot. And it says he died 10 days later. And David, who must have either gotten Abigail's phone number through a mutual friend or poked her on Facebook or uh, maybe hit her up on christianmingle.com, I don't know how, but he got word to her that he wanted to marry her. And she, 
for some reason said yes to all of this mess and became one of David's wives. And uh, David, as, as you probably know, lived happily ever after, or at least as happily ever after as anyone could if they had many wives. But I just want to take a quick minute to, to look at who we met in this story. We met Nabal, and Nabal was intent on repaying evil for good. Nabal chose to take what David had done for him, this service, this favor he had done for him in protecting his, his sheep for an entire year so that he would have a good year and would have had a generous year. And he repaid it with evil, with insults, and with unkindness. And that's really, we could call that lawlessness, couldn't we? This idea that if people can't even get along with the people they like, you really don't have much opportunity to build a society or a civilization. That's kind of the assumed. You, you, you would assume you don't need a law to tell people who like each other and do each other favors that they should be nice. But then we meet David. And David was intent on repaying evil for evil. Without a doubt, what Nabal had done was wrong, but don't, don't doubt for a second what David was planning was also wrong. He was going there to massacre everyone because of an insult from Nabal. But it falls into the category of Old Testament law, doesn't it? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and I don't want to wash over that. There's a lot in Old Testament law that was about generosity and helping others. We always use this as a short form of what Old Testament law was like. But this was how justice was done. It was about evening things up. It was getting even. And then finally, we met Abigail. And Abigail chose to repay good for evil. And that's just a great example of New Testament law, loving one another. In fact, it's a great example of being Christ-like because Abigail knew something that day and David learned something that day that many people would still find shocking a thousand years later when Peter wrote this. And Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He wrote this, Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. And then in the very next couple of verses, Peter actually quotes something from the Old Testament. I'll just share it with you. It says, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. And that's an amazing statement from the Old Testament, as I said. It's actually from the book of Psalms. And of course, what we probably know from that is that David, the same David from our story today, David wrote that. Later in his life, looking back at events that had happened, looking back at this event, he wrote that in, in Psalm 34. And although Peter quoted that from David, I think he learned it from Jesus. I think Peter spending day after day, side by side with Jesus, living with him, learning with him, traveling with him, dedicating his life to, to the teachings that Jesus had, I think this is something that he would have learned. And we know that he would have been standing there when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And that we, can, we can read about that in Matthew 5, verse 43 and 44. Jesus spoke these words. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You know, we could, we could restate that a little bit, couldn't we? Because to, to hate your enemy, that's repaying evil for evil. And to love your enemy, that's repaying good for evil. So we can reread it a little bit and say, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and repay evil for evil. But Jesus says, repay good for evil. Pray for those who persecute you. So what is one of the most Christ-like things that we can do? It's to repay good for evil. 
but it's more than just refusing to get even. It's more than what David did. It, it goes beyond that. You see, mercy is when you do nothing, even when someone deserves it. If someone deserves punishment, mercy is you withholding that punishment and saying, I'm not going to do that. But there's something greater than mercy. It's called grace. Grace is doing something for someone, even when they don't deserve it. And so in that moment, we saw David, when he turned back, he was exhibiting mercy. But we know that grace is greater. Grace is the willingness to repay good for evil, to offer someone something they don't deserve just because you love them. And, you know, I, I kind of, to me, it, hit, it, hit, it hits home in a different way. I don't typically think of myself as someone with enemies. I know some of you right now are staring at the screen saying, oh, yes, you have enemies. And if that's true, don't tell me. But some people, you know, I don't consider myself to be somebody with enemies. But ask me, if you ask me this, do you have broken and damaged relationships in your past that you kind of are quite happy to leave in your past? I'd have to say yes. Have you, have you gone past the idea of mercy where you're just letting it go? Have you done something to exhibit grace, to do something for someone, such as Jesus said, pray for them? Pray for them every day without them even knowing it? I'd have to say no. Grace is so much harder than mercy. Mercy is the ability to walk away without getting even. Grace is for you to do something to the benefit of someone who has wronged you. And we know that uh, to repay good and evil requires more than just letting go of a grudge. It requires us to, uh, to really to love our enemies. And in saying so, it's deciding to act like Jesus acted and to live like Jesus lived and to love like Jesus loved. Last verse, John 13, 34. This is Jesus minutes after he had washed his disciples' feet, minutes after he had announced that he was about to be um, betrayed by one of his own. Jesus said this, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And that's where Abigail's story and our story and the story of Jesus kind of all intersect. You see, Jesus offers more than mercy. He offers grace. Because loving Jesus will not only set us apart, it can set us free. See, Jesus on that cross, he did so much more than offer mercy. He took our punishment away. He, and he did that, and that's mercy. And we can never be thankful enough, but he did more. He also offered us grace. He offered to restore our loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's grace. And so a simple question for all of us to think about tonight, what would it look like in your life? What would it look like in your life to extend mercy to someone else? And what would it look like to go beyond that, to extend grace, to choose to not repay evil for evil, but to repay good for evil? Let's just pray. Lord, just so thankful to have your word. It's, it's so rich, and, and the more you read it, the more you understand uh, what's happening in some of these stories. And Lord, I'm thankful that you wouldn't let chapter 5 get away from me this, this past week, that you, that you kept bringing it back to me and bringing it back to me. And it's, it's, such, a, it's such a powerful teaching, Lord. And as always, we, we find everything that we learn about the nature of who you are comes back to the nature of your son. And we're just so thankful, so thankful for your choice to send your son to be that sacrifice for us. How can we not want to live our lives for him? And Lord, I just pray for, for people this week as we head out from, the, from wherever they are. Can we just keep in mind what, what, it, what your son did for us and what grace means? Not just that we are the receivers of grace, but we are to be the givers of grace to others. So thankful for that. So thankful for Kingsway and this, this fantastic church family. Just in your name we pray this. Amen.